everybody. Well, this should be an interesting one. I sit down and talk with Josh from the Flyover Libertarian podcast. We go over our favorite author, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and we talk about the Lord of the Rings. We talk about the broader universe and some of the lessons we can learn from the story. Um, I think you'll really enjoy this. We cover a lot of ground, and in fact, I had to trim a lot off of this particular episode. Normally, when I record, we try to record for 30 to 45 minutes, and Josh and I talked for an hour and 15. Uh, Maybe I'll take some of the stuff I cut out and make a little bonus episode out of it, Um, but even as it stands, this episode is longer than the usual episode. Uh, So it took a bit longer to edit than normal, so sorry that this is coming out late. But it's a really great conversation. I think you guys will really like it. And with that being said, let's get into my conversation with Josh. Okay, everybody. Welcome, Josh. Uh, We're here to talk about Lord of the Rings. This is a exciting day because when I started this podcast, talking about Lord of the Rings was one of the things I really desperately wanted to do. And who better to do that with than Josh here, who was equally excited to speak with me. Josh, want to say hi to the people? Hey, what up, people? <laughs> nice. Yeah, <laughs> you were talking to me in DMs before this, and you just had an interview with Joshua Smith right. on your show. Yeah. And you were saying how you were even more excited to talk with me than Joshua it's true. Smith. So I feel pretty honored. <laughs> the subject. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Like, we, we got to have a... Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, the future chairman of the Libertarian Party on. But then all along the while, I was just like, oh, but I'm so excited to talk about Tolkien. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because that's, that's one thing. It's like, uh, you know, what do they say? Atheists, vegans, CrossFitters, and Tolkien fans. You can tell them by the way they won't shut up about them, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you should probably talk about the throw, like, Libertarians and Anarchists into that list, too. But... <laughs> yeah, that, too. Yeah, that, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but enough about our mutuals on Twitter. Let's hop into <laughs> Tolkien here. Um, I'm just going to do a quick little uh, read-off with a few little factoids about Lord of the Rings. Of course, Lord of the Rings, um, as they're often called a trilogy, but is probably more aptly described as a three-volume novel, written, of course, by the fantastic J.R.R. Tolkien. It's, of course, set in the fantastical setting of middle earth which spans a wide universe including other works such as the hobbit and the silmarillion the publication date was in the 29th of july in 1954 that was uh, for the fellowship of the ring the follow-up volumes were published in the 11th of november of 54 and the 20th of october in 55 respectively i guess uh that wraps up the lord of the rings I'll just want to say a couple things about Tolkien first because the man behind the books is honestly just as fascinating as the books. In my opinion, arguably the greatest author to have ever lived. Tolkien was uh, born in 1892. He uh, was born in South Africa, but he moved back to the British Isle, of course, uh, with his mother when he was just three. He lost his father uh, in early in his early childhood, and when he was 12, his mother died from diabetes, and that 
obviously shaped his life, but that life tragedy would not be the last for our favorite author here, as he would go on to fight in the First World War, where he would lose the majority of his friends, but as fate would have it, it would unite him with one of the other great authors of his time uh, and his contemporary and great friend, C.S. Lewis. And him and Lewis would go on to really shape fiction as we know it today. Th their works were the inspiration for the great both uh, fantasy and sci-fi works of our time. So, I don't know, let's get into chatting about it mm -hmm. now that we've gotten through the factoids here. Yeah. Because those are my favorite books. I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy every year. I skipped this year, and I'll have to tell you why. It's a bit of a funny anecdote. I moved in January into the place I'm living now, and I had... I'm not that far from my parents' house, but I tried to get in contact with my mother. I was like, Mom, my Lord of the Rings books didn't make it with me. Is there any way you could find them? And she could not find them for the life of her. Well, after about six months of me having no idea where my books were, they were returned to her. Apparently, she had lent them out to a kid of one of her girlfriends <laughs> who was just getting into reading fantasy and things like that. And she had lent out my Lord of the Rings books. I, I had no idea where they were, but... I was happy to know that they were blessing the mind of a of another young lad, hopefully planting that little mind virus of Middle-earth into his brain as well. So it's okay that I missed out on my reading last year because it was going towards a good cause. Yeah, I, I also used to do about once a year. Um, <clears throat> that kind of died when I, um, when I went to seminary and I found myself overwhelmed with books that I needed to read. But I've recently gotten back into into the world through my son because uh, I started reading The Hobbit to him when he turned about four-ish, um, four and a half maybe. But I, I was reading The Hobbit to him and um, I got to the end of it and I was planning on jumping from there into the, uh, the Narnia series. Uh, so you mm -hmm. mentioned C.S. Lewis. But I got to the end of it and I, t I was telling him like, yeah, we're going to go read this other series. It's, it's so good. And then he said, and after that, are we going to go back to Bilbo? And so I was like, <laughs> yes, 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 we can. <laughs> so oh, that's now I'm reading it with him for the second time. And we just, we just escaped the caverns of the Woodland King and uh, on our way to Lake Town. So it's, it's been wonderful. fun experiencing it through my son now this time. And, and uh, yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, that was actually my introduction uh, to the world of Middle-earth as well, was The Hobbit. My mom didn't let me read Lord of the Rings right after, though, because she was like, oh, that's going to be a little too mature for you. I, I don't think you're quite ready for that yeah. yet. Uh, yeah, when I was 12, my mom got me the trilogy for Christmas, and I, I destroyed it in, like two, three days. Yeah. It was crazy. I did nothing but read through them. Absolutely ate it up. And I just fell in love immediately. Yeah, I've been holding off on reading the Lord of the Rings to my son too. And actually I think there's a, a good reason for that. And I think this is actually something of a flaw that like my generation came into because a lot of us experienced the movies first. Like that was actually my introduction mm -hmm. is I watched the movies and I, I loved it so much. Ah. that I was like, okay, now I got to read the books. But as a result, when I read them, a lot of people, like the first time they watched the movies, they saw Bilbo 
and they almost got a bad feeling about it, like a bad taste for him because their first experience mm-hmm. was Bilbo, who after many, many years holding the ring, isn't wanting to give it up. And there's that scene in the in, in the first movie where his eyes bulge out and, and, yeah. and that's all they know about Bilbo. And so it doesn't affect them seeing what he's becoming. And and uh, they don't love Bilbo the way the original readers did. And also there's there's a sense in which we don't get hit by the tragedy when they find the tomb of Balin in Moria. Yes. Because we loved him. Like, you know, the people, the original readers love Balin. That was one of the most important of the dwarves that traveled with with uh, Bilbo. And so when we find his his grave there in Casa Doom, we all just like, oh, not Balin. <laughs> Bilbo's yeah, yeah. best friend. And so there's, there's, I think, a sense in which is your, your parents did it right by holding you off and making you stick with the Hobbit first. Like, all right, first fall in love in the, with the world of the, of the Hobbit. First fall in love with the story of Bilbo's magic ring. And then later you find, oh, so there's more to this ring than, than it just makes him invisible. Oh, you know? And that's kind of why I read uh, The Hobbit with, with my son twice because I... I and I'll probably read it with my other sons as well, because I think the the effect of the books is best experienced when you live in The Hobbit for a little while and then you let that go into the full series. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I also think that, as, as you were saying, those who watch the movies first kind of missed out because I wasn't allowed to watch the movies because, you know, it, that's, that's a lot of there's too much violence. Yep. We can't have that. Um, my mom doesn't actually sound like that. <laughs> uh, that's that's the voice I give to all homeschool moms, though. Uh, I love I love her dearly, but uh, she had me read the books first, and then after I read the books, then she bought me the extended edition set. Mm. She like went all out. She didn't buy me just the DVD collection of the regular. Mm. Movies. No, she went and bought me the collector's edition with all the bonus content and everything. Of course, I went through all of it and enjoyed all of it. Good stuff. And that's the only way I will watch the Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. trilogy is with the extended editions. I can't even watch the theatrical cuts because there's just so much missing. Yeah. And I actually think that the movies, as far as Hollywood goes, they did as good a job of bringing the books to life as i think i've ever seen hollywood yeah. do with any piece of of written media ever yeah. but um we won't talk about what they did with the hobbit yeah see you know what i actually have opinions about that <laughs> mm. i also was not a huge fan of the hobbit i thought the hobbit was was not a great movie and i think the reason was because they didn't let the hobbit be its own story I think Peter Jackson understood the Lord of the Rings in a way that he didn't understand the Hobbit. And in some ways he was killed by his own success on the second set because the first movies, I think he understood the books. He got it. And even though there are some things missing, I kind of understood the things that cut cut. Um, And he got kind of the, the feel and the spirit of it, but he created this epic and so yeah. he was like, well, they're going to be expecting an epic for my follow-up with The Hobbit. Exactly. But The Hobbit is not an epic. The Hobbit is an adventure story. It's a children's story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think that old, um, what is it? Is it? Oh, oh my gosh. Who made that old cartoon of The Hobbit? 
It's old, old. I forget. It's very old, but I know the one you're talking yeah, I, about. Yeah, I forget who did it, but that's maybe still the best Hobbit. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll look it up right now while you vamp. And so, yeah, that, I think that's uh, that's kind of my opinion. He, yeah, he got destroyed by his own success on the movies. But, I mean, I like the Lord of the Rings as well. Like that, Obviously, I liked it enough that I wanted to get further into the world. But, yeah. Okay. Directed by Jules Bass, Arthur Rankin Jr., and Romeo Mueller. See, I was about to say Rankin and Bass. I was going to say Rankin and Bass, but I was like, wait yeah. a minute. Was it? <laughs> yeah, it was Rankin and Bass. Yeah, yeah I, that captures the more whimsical yeah. and yeah. you know what it reminds me you, there is a moment in the lord of the rings that feels very much like the hobbit and it's very early on in the fellowship of the ring and it is when they run across the ever so controversial ever so mysterious character of tom bombadil uh-huh in that portion of the fellowship of the ring which was cut from the movie yep. as we know and i think with good reason it, mm. because it doesn't fit with the rest of the theme it's a callback to yeah. the whimsical nature of the hobbit and i think also there's no way he could have done justice to this no. enigmatic no. character <laughs> yeah i 100 percent agree that the reason tom bombadil works is because that's tolkien's character yeah. that's tolkien's cameo yeah in there yeah it's a reference to his his other works mm-hmm. uh, that are regarding Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a sense, he, he's a bit like a fourth wall breaking type of character because it's a character from another property, essentially inserted into uh, the Lord of the Rings universe. So there's a lot of different interpretations on that mm-hmm. and, and perhaps discussions on who yeah. is Tom Bombadil could be a podcast episode of its own. I've discussed it at length with some of my fellow yeah. Lord of the Rings friends, so we won't get bogged down in that discussion. But I think here. I think he, he represents one of the reasons why Tolkien is so amazing is because he doesn't tell us everything. Like it's mm-hmm. that, that sense that everyone feels this this sense of depth to his world. And part of what makes that sense of depth is that not every question gets answered. Sometimes he, maybe it's due to intention. Maybe it's due to just the fact that he sometimes would write a story, then lose his notes and kind of not, you know, lose his place. But as a result, there's the, there's like questions like that are still debated. Like who is Tom Bombadil? Who is, yeah. Who's this guy? Do Balrogs have wings? Uh, how do we solve that the problem of that? Oh my goodness, that that elf. I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but the elf who dies in the Silmarillion then shows up again in the Lord of the Rings, and and all these mm-hmm. questions are like, there's kind of mysteries at the heart of his whole world. One of the lesser known ones that always strikes me is why does the Witch King's sword light on fire when we know that the Nazgul are terrified of fire? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's just he didn't answer all the questions. And so he leaves this this sense that it's a real world because that's how real worlds work. Right. Maybe because we've all went to public school and heard the as uh, Tom Woods likes to call it, like, you know, that the, the one dimensional view of history, this real simple whatever. But real history is confusing and debatable because we'll never get into the head of these people who lived years and years ago. And the further away we get from the events we won't be able to piece together everything that was going on at the time because every event is 
in many ways the the result of its time and place and as a result like the further we look back into history we see things and we're like maybe it was because of this maybe it was because of this maybe it was because of this maybe it was all three maybe it was none of the you know but yeah but and that's and that's we, the same sense we get when we read the lord of the rings is we get the sense that it's a real world and a real history which comes with ambiguity and uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about Middle Earth is that there's there's enough explained to make you want more, but there's enough left out yeah. to leave you questioning yeah. endlessly. Yeah, like the first time you read through the books, it's just a good story. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, many people will be like, oh, there's a lot of details and I just kind of skimmed that, you know, or there's, they go on and on about the food and <laughs> I skimmed over that, but you'll go through just, and it's just a great story with really interesting characters, but then you go back through it the second time and you start to see how the details are all falling into place. You start to see these hints at a deeper world going on behind it. I think it's one of the most beautiful and complex books that you can study it from hundreds of angles. This is part of what what I love about it. I'm actually not a huge fantasy guy. Like I don't read mm-hmm. tons of books. I tried to get into the Song of Fire and Ice, but I for one thing I I still haven't read those. Yeah. I refuse to read them until it's completed. That's part of the reason I stopped it, but also like I just it's not really the the act of fantasy that I get into. It's that the Lord of the Rings told this deep story and, and the further you get into it, you can study like the philosophy is so deep and the the history and the poetry mm-hmm. of of it is so deep and the theology of it, like, you know, the, that his, oh my his whole world is so like with its complex hierarchy of deities and yeah. it's all so fascinating that you can you can and I intend to spend my entire life uh, studying it and, and yeah, absolutely. Well, actually speaking of, of what you mentioned with poetry and of theology, let's touch briefly on the Silmarillion, yeah. which is really, if you love Lord of the Rings and you love world building, the Silmarillion is the next logical yeah. place to go to. It is, it can be a bit of a slog to get through, but yeah. some of Tolkien's greatest writing and in fact i think tolkien's greatest piece of writing my favorite piece of writing in tolkien comes from the silmarillion now there's a lot in there and it covers a lot of different things it covers kind of the creation story Mm -hmm. it even has a little bit of like lord of the rings uh, eschatology Mm -hmm. in there um but my favorite uh story is the tale of uh turin turumbar which is Mm a tale on par with the greatest of Shakespearean tragedies yeah. in terms of its telling. It is yeah. probably my favorite fantasy story ever told because it has the drama, it's got the adventure, it's got the the speeches and the, the dialogue that you would find in classic literature such as Shakespeare. And to me... Seeing that from Tolkien, it is both an ode to the the great English uh, playwrights and also, in some ways, the successor to it. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's it's more literature than it is a, a play. Mm-hmm. It it encapsulates everything great yeah. about the British line of of yeah. writing. You know, 
taking from Chaucer and taking from Shakespeare and becoming, you know, in my opinion, the, 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 the real champion of, of English literature in, in Tolkien. Yeah. That's the story is like a Greek, uh, Greek tragedy brought to life. It's so, yeah. It's so, yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah, I would highly recommend that because that that one you can actually read standalone to any sure. of our any, any of our listeners. You don't yeah. really need to know any of the context that that particular story is in to appreciate the depth of tragedy. I remember yeah. literally crying at the end of that story. Yeah, and I might be wrong about this, but I think it has an extended um, version in in Unfinished Tales or something like that. I think it may. Yeah, that, I, I can't remember. I don't recall. Yeah, but I mean, I would say the same thing about Silmarillion that I w- did about the the Lord of the Rings. That I would start with really living in the Lord of the Rings world for a little while before getting into Silmarillion because yes. I found that the people yeah. who who find it dry and boring, they're the ones who just did a straight read through. Like they start in the Hobbit, then they do the Lord of the Rings, then they go to the Silmarillion, and they're like, "Oh, the Silmarillion was so hard to read." Well, you you really had no motivation. <laughs> to read it like until you've read through the Lord of the Rings a few times and you're starting to, it's the same thing with, with Bilbo. You're getting really into the world of Bilbo and his magic ring. And then you read the Lord of the Rings and you go, it goes deeper and you read that a few times and you start to see the depth in the world and the hints of stories going on. And then just get your appetite good and wetted for wanting to get uh, more of that. And then you go to the Silmarillion and suddenly here's the answers and he, or here's a little bit more of the answers to this. And, uh, and of course then you've got, after you've lived in the Silmarillion for a little while, uh, you've got Christopher Tolkien's, um, yeah. Gift to us in the form of the history of middle earth, um, which gets into the, the history, which sometimes people read that and are confused about what it is, but it's really the history of the writing of the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. Yeah and seeing the way that the stories kind of came together and gradually became their final form, um, which is fascinating and so good. Yeah, I, I agree. So, you know, you, you want to be steeped in Lord of the Rings before you tackle yeah. these these other things. You need to grow to love the universe yeah. because to really appreciate these other works, you have to appreciate the Lord of the Rings itself. Yeah. And like I said earlier, to this day, I still read it about once a year because I just love this series so much more than anything else I've, I shouldn't say anything else, but any other work of fiction right. that I've ever read, uh, the Lord of the Rings is, and, is truly, yeah. And it grabs me every time and I pull something new out of yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's, and it also speaks to so many moments of in, in my life. Like when I first became, enmeshed with it i was i was actually doing dungeons and dragons and so it was a Mm. way to explore kind of what is the world of that i'm trying to inhabit when i'm playing dungeons and dragons and then it it kind of became like i was starting to study writing in college that was my first uh major and then i would read this book for its masterful composition and for the language of it and it made me feel like absolute trash with my own writing and then yeah. uh and then i got into after that i i uh ended up going to seminary to become a a pastor and then i was fascinated by the the theology of it and there's such a there's a constant theme of providence in his books that if you look really carefully you'll notice all the terrible things that happen end up resulting in something better. Like, so we, like I just said, we, we just got out of the, the halls of the woodland King 
and they're on their way to Lake Town, and then he makes that little detail as Bilbo's riding along with the raftmen, hearing, yeah, the, the path that they were on, it ends up getting really bad, and they wouldn't have made it if they'd gone by this path. Like, the, Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, the only yep. way that they would have ever actually made it to the mountain is by getting captured by the Woodland Elves and and escaping that way and by the river, and that's like... Mm-hmm. Or like the fact that they get captured by goblins, but as a result, Bilbo finds the ring, and they actually make their way across the mountains faster than they would have had they climbed over it. You know, like all these this this constant theme of the guiding hand of Iluvatar throughout the series. Like you know, there, there's that question like that always comes up: Who raised Gandalf from the dead? You know, like there's no explanation. He just suddenly he fell he fell into darkness. And then suddenly he awakened. You're like, who who was that? That's Eru. That's that's Iluvatar getting into the world and yeah. and moving things in the direction that it's meant to go and raising him to be the the leader of the the wizards that he was meant to be and uh, taking uh, Saruman's place and and then of course when I got later into I I started going through my political transformations. You also find in this book this fascinating political dimension to the series that on first glance you're like well it's just kings but it's not really that that simple as like you know absolute monarch or whatever like that like there's there's some complicated political dimensions in this that are fascinating as well you know lord of the rings is as much political drama as it is anything else it asks questions like what is the right of a king to be a king what are the obligations of a government what are the obligations amongst international powers Mm -hmm. what truly makes one deserving of a throne Uh, things like that Mm -hmm. are are questions that are all very complicated complex Mm -hmm. things are tackled in in this work and as well as perhaps on top of it all is that the lord of the rings is when you think about it this way and and when i thought about it this way my eyes were totally open to it it is one of the greatest works of anti-war literature that I've ever read. As a young kid, I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. But when you read those books, it is a whole list of terrible things that happen during war. Yeah, uh, It is – you look at uh, Saruman's um, machine where he is destroying the, the forest – in order to do what? Build war machines, yeah. right? To bring out more orcs, their soldiers, right? It is Tolkien's direct criticism of the concept of a war machine. And the further you go through it, you look at the casualties of war. And those casualties of war can be Boromirs who die on the battlefield. They can be Faramirs who are called to do things that they know are wrong but have to do them because they're, you know, ordered to do them. And it, you know, it brings in the, it calls in the question, when is it right for a soldier to follow orders or not, right? It, it tackles some very complex issues regarding war. And to me is, is perhaps the most profound piece of anti-war literature that I've ever read. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, of course, Saruman creates gunpowder. That's such a, yeah. an important detail. Like gunpowder is created by the villain, you know, he's, it, these are, and I think there's a, 
there's a sense in which, like you said, there's an anti-war aspect, but there's also just like a, I guess you could call like a traditionalist sort of like there was a time when war was a thing that that, that gentlemen did. <laughs> I guess you could say like there's yeah. a thing of like with swords and, and you met your enemy on the battlefield and it wasn't this mass bloody thing you know like there's there's a sense in which that's kind of a, a sense that he gets that he would have known like he would have looked back to those as a classicalist who had fought in a great world war he would have seen this just the murder machines that nations had become in his day yeah that's absolutely right specifically for tolkien when you consider when and how he grew up yeah. as somebody who fought in the first world war this was the first instance of total war mm. that europe had ever experienced and the absolute devastation that it had before the closest thing that they had were the napoleonic wars but even those were conducted on open fields of battle that did not involve such heavy civilian casualties yeah. like you saw in the first world war and even tracking further before that when you had warring kingdoms Honestly, war was as much sport as anything. It was a way for men to earn badges of honor and courage. And often what you would find is that nobility who met upon the battlefield wouldn't kill each other. They'd keep each other hostage. And war was not total in the sense that it was in the Great War. So they called it the war to end all wars in World War One because they thought, how could anything akin to this happened again after what we just witnessed because war had mm -hmm. changed forever after the first world war and i mean in a sense total war had been waged elsewhere throughout history it's something that had happened but in europe in living memory nothing like that had ever happened and so it's unsurprising for him to hearken back and compare that to the orcs yeah and the sor the forces of sauron who were an unstoppable war machine uh, to resist against. Yeah, I think there's also like like really the 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 world wars that is the legacy of the nation state, the secular nation state of of the power monger state, I guess you could call. Before that there were still and I think I I'm speaking into Tolkien's old worldview when I say there was tradition, culture, religion things that stopped wars from becoming that from becoming this yeah. just really like the industrialization of murder is what we created war into being and, and those world wars were the the great example of that it made assembly line soldiers that became efficient killing machines and there was no beauty no honor no it was just yeah. blood and guts and and uh yeah, and, and, and it's the legacy of the power monger state. And that, of course, is another huge theme in The Lord of the Rings is the subject of power and the desire to wield it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another aspect that can easily be pulled out of the books is a critique of just modernism in general, right? right? It is it's the it's the bad guys who are using the machines mm -hmm. the bad guys who are destroying the environment yeah. it is the bad guys who are breaking traditions of old and it, it's very much a critique of the modern world. yeah he who breaks a thing to see what it is made up of has left the path of wisdom that's what gandalf says to saruman when he he says white white's a good starting point 
for, and yes. then he's like, so you, you wrecked this thing in order to understand what it was. That's, that's the cold rationalistic scientific worldview that had, that created the nuclear bomb, you know, that absolutely that's, that's what happened. We just, well, I mean, we, we discover this thing and what do we do? We find a way to kill people with it. Like that's, that's what we do in, in the, that's what the power hungry, the, the modernist that does. And yeah, it's, yeah, it really is like you're, you're like you said, uh, it's a critique really of the modernistic worldview and, and, and yeah, the, the subject of power, I I've always found very fascinating in the subject of Lord of the Rings, but it also follows that same thing. And of course, everyone's favorite character from the Lord of the Rings, uh, Samwise Gamgee Absolutely. is the, the perfect example of this. Like, you know, it's so funny because those of us who watch the movies and those who still watch the movies don't always know, like there's another ring bearer in that story. Like Sam Gamgee yeah. is a ring bearer. He, he takes yep. the, the ring off of what he thinks is Bilbo's corpse and it's such a small moment in the movies. And I, again, I understand why it's a small movement. That would have taken a long time to go into. But he wears and holds that ring for a long, long time. And there's that amazing moment where he gets this vision. The ring gives him a vision of him conquering all of Mordor. Him taking control, wresting its power from Sauron, taking all that power. And then he can turn the whole thing into this massive garden. And he's a great warrior King and gardener over the whole realm of Mordor. And then he's getting into this, it's this temptation offered to him. And then he eventually comes down to, but I don't want that. I, I don't want that. I want to go back home and I want to cultivate my own garden. I want to live in the, the Shire, my own peaceful, quiet life. I don't want this delusion of grandeur. I don't want this power and might that the ring is offering. And that's why he is the hero of the series. It's because he is the one who chooses peace and the quiet life over yeah. power and control. Of course, that's another reason why Bilbo is such a, a beloved figure in his stories is because Absolutely. you've got that constant refrain that all throughout the story and the adventure, it keeps that refrain of he once again thought about his home and his kettle and his cakes and not for the last time. <laughs> like that constant yeah, refrain. Yeah, exactly. The, the true hero in the story of The Lord of the Rings is meant to be Sam. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily clear the first read through. Right. But on the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth read-through, it becomes ever more clear yeah. that Samwise Gamgee is the hero in the story. He is the protagonist in the story. Yeah. Most people would call Frodo the protagonist, but the true protagonist of The Lord of the Rings is Samwise Gamgee. Yeah. The idea of a protagonist, right? That's in literature. That is the person who has something happen to them. It's his best friend who has this burden mm -hmm. and he follows his friend to share in it yeah. when his friend stumbles he picks him up and carries him to literally to their their final destination and at the very end of all things it is sam that frodo relies upon mm -hmm. and that's meant to be an analogy for the average person yeah. that that is and i find this both in tolkien's writing and lewis's writing um and in other uh, British authors like Chesterton, for example, mm -hmm. where the, 
this this individualist brand of British uh, thought and philosophy that it is that the most noble and indeed the most satisfying of life is found in living the quiet, the humble, and the outward focused Mm -hmm. life of of a man of humility Mm -hmm. right it takes into concept the the biblical notion that it is the meek who shall inherit the earth and samwise gamji is written to really encapsulate that message he is by far the the most meek the most humble the most reserved the most unwanting of power yeah of all of the characters yeah. in the entire series. Mm-hmm. And that is why, at the end, Tolkien holds him up yeah. as the true hero. Because that is, at the end of the day, the ultimate lesson of Lord of the Rings, yeah. in my opinion. It is the lesson that it is the meek who shall inherit the Yeah, earth. yeah. And, and it's also, uh, I don't know how to say this. Like, It's the one who is able to just enjoy simple pleasures that is also yeah hero of the right what does he want to do he doesn't want to go off with frodo yeah. he wants to remain frodo's gardener yeah that's all he wants to yeah. do he wants to to get married and to tend to the sproutings of the earth yeah. and there is something there is something truly noble in such a humble yeah. endeavor and that's i fully agree with tolkien mm-hmm. When it comes to that, I think that the yeah. maybe this is the agorist in me, <laughs> me speaking out, but and the farmer in me speaking out as well. A simple life is often yeah. the one that is most fulfilling. It's kind of like, I like you know, like that. Like I said, the Hobbit has been I've been living in, but also like you can you you can see it especially by its stark contrast in the Lord of the Rings, the life of the hobbits and the desires of of Sam. And even of Pippin and Mary, that they just want to go smoke their pipes and live their peaceful lives back in the Shire. They get caught up in this giant adventure. And the tragedy of Frodo is that after bearing the ring for so long is that he can't enjoy that world anymore. And there's a sense in which he's very, I don't think this this would be a shock to Tolkien to, to see that there's kind of a Christ figure aspect to him, him taking on the sin and, and corruption of the world. But he, for others, there's the sense of which, you know, he he does this and he, he makes this journey. But as a result, he can't go back to the world he lived before. Yeah. And, and it's a tragedy. That is definitely a bit of an analogy there. Another thing I think it really evokes in me, like I said about this being one of the greatest anti-war books I've ever read, is that... It clearly speaks to PTSD Uh it talks about the wound that Frodo received in the middle of the Fellowship of the Ring Mm -hmm. part of the story and how it always bothered him. That type of tragedy is how could that be written by anyone other than someone who watched his friends die in the trenches during the First World War? That is all of the emotions that Tolkien felt watching his comrades die born out in the life of Frodo who can never go back to his real life because those images, those memories haunt him forever. 
And I think that's in some ways why he even looks up to Sam, right? Yeah. Why Frodo in the end looks up to Sam and why I think, in a sense, Tolkien himself looks up to Sam is because that idyllic yeah. hero who goes through all this but can manage to go back yeah. to it all. Uh, that is the person mm-hmm. that I think Tolkien wanted to be. Mm-hmm. In many ways, he did achieve that. He did achieve his life as Samwise through you yeah. know his later life. But in his writings and and also through other personal writings that you know he was still haunted by that. How mm-hmm. could you not be yeah. after seeing what those people had to go through in yeah. the First World War? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And of course, that's uh, I think one of the reasons why. One of the reasons why I love the movies, Lord of the Rings, is because of... Well, I think they cast almost everyone just perfectly. But especially the casting of Samwise Gamgee. I'm forgetting his name right now, but he he was just perfect as Sam. Like, he encapsulated Sam so well. Like, he didn't steal the screen. He just humbly... <laughs> he just humbly pushed the, the story along, and he was very... just perfectly encapsulated it. And, uh, you know, something I I was going to say a second ago, like also there's the, the very heavily complicated character of Boromir because the movies have to be somewhat simple, but he, uh, he's a very complicated figure because, and I think he's meant to be this character who represents the will to power with the best of intentions. Yes. You know, he's he's the one who says, let's use the ring. And, and he does like I think so often we, we we see what he became and we miss the fact that he uh, like almost we see it as a redemption that he died for the hobbits. And in some ways it is. But in many ways, that also shows who he really is. And it shows the power of the ring and that the metaphor it represents, which is the which I think is the will to power that even the best most amazing of characters and he is this this great noble person that we should look at with respect even he is able to be corrupted by his desire even if it's meant for a good purpose he wants this ring for good purposes and galadriel says something much the same right where she knows like i take it out of a desire to be good but you get a a far worse queen than even sauron himself you know like and there's even the good. And I think that's that's a scene that I think the Lord of the Rings gets wrong. I don't think Galadriel is is actually being tempted in that moment. She's straightforwardly explaining what would happen if she were to desire this ring. I, I don't think she's in any way being like tempted like the movie portrays her as. But he is. And he is the, the best example of why even the best. And we see it all the time, right? The... You've got people who go to Washington with the best of intentions. They're going to clean up the system and you compromise a little here. You compromise a little there all with the idea that I'll get myself into a position where I can make real change. And then before you know it, the muck is all over you. It's between your toes, under your fingernails, and you are the problem. You become the the very evil you thought you were there to stop. Those who seek power are not fit to wield it. You've you've got that same in him as in as well, and and I think that we we're right to see that through the Lord of the Rings series, and I think there's this sense that and it's a very Tolkien thing to think that it's very easy for us to look at people who have greater opportunity for sin, 
and then condemn them harder when they do the, the terrible sin. Like it's very popular now for us to look at these powerful elitists who are in these, you know, into drugs and alcohol and, and pedophilic behavior, these terrible, awful things that they're doing. And you, you, it's very easy for us to look down on them. But in our hearts, like you look at when I look at my own heart and I'm like, if I could get away with anything and I had confidence that I could actually get away with anything, can I really say that I wouldn't like uh, I'm as someone who recognizes their own fallenness? I can tell you with 100 percent certainty that I would fall prey to the the worst of the worst things. You know, what is it? um, uh, I want to say, is it Jordan Peterson who talks about this, that the idea that. If you ask a classic question, would you follow the Nazis? You know, ninety-five <laughs> percent of the people in the room would follow after the Nazis. It's just very few people have that yeah. power to resist. And I tell you, it's only by grace that I would have the power to resist Absolutely. anything. Yeah, I was just gonna say I don't, I don't know I don't know the religious uh, bent of your podcast or anything like that. But as a, as a very as a Christian man myself, I do know that in some ways it's the grace of God that I have not had the opportunity to do far worse. Like I, I know that there's, there's times in my life where I could have gone so much deeper into the muck and I was so much more prey to it. And it was the lack of opportunity that kept me from, from getting there. And I think that's really when it gets back to why are the hobbits, the heroes of the Lord of the Rings is because they are not fighting over thrones and power and gold and all these things. They are a simple people who enjoy a feast, who enjoy pipe weed, who enjoy a good beer and a brandy. And, uh, yeah. And that's, that's, they want to go home. They, <laughs> that's, that's what makes them the heroes. They don't want to take a kingdom, they don't even want yeah. to be the hero. They just want to go. Yeah. Home. The old classical conservative vision of home and hearth, just enjoy yeah. your home, enjoy your own hearth, enjoy your own family, smoke some tobacco, drink some brandy, enjoy a good sunset and stay far, far away from the power games and, or to, to steal a, to steal yeah. a phrase from a different book series, the game of Thrones, stay far away from that and just enjoy the simple pleasures of your own house. The best fantasy is the type that ends with the hero riding off to find the simple life. That is truly what the heroes are fighting for. Anything, that opportunity is what they're fighting for. Yeah. It is far more desirable to find happiness in what is simple than grand and ex- extraordinary. Yeah. I, I agree. And, and I think that's ultimately... Well, I guess I'll say this. Ultimately, what is terrifying me about this new Lord of the Rings, mid, uh, you know, Middle Earth series that's going to be coming out on, on Prime is, I am afraid now that Christopher Tolkien is dead, there is no one there to stand for Tolkien's worldview, and we are so far away from it that we don't know how to bring his world to life anymore. Honestly, what I'm worried about is that not. It's worse than at the time, right? It's not only... Because Tolkien's whole view was to stand against the modernists, yes. right? That was very much what he was doing. He was in the vein of the Chestertons and the other mm-hmm. British authors of the, of the time, stand, taking a stance against the modernists. 
the people who are running Hollywood now, they're not even postmodernists. They're post-postmodernists. These people are, in my opinion, worse than the modernists because they've seen what the war machine can do and they fully embrace it. You know, that's what the neoliberal, neoconservative consensus does. They've seen what the Prussian school system does to the minds Mm -hmm. of the people and they're happy to wield it. Yeah. These are the worst people imaginable. And I don't, politics isn't what drives this show. Mostly I just want to talk about nerd stuff. Uh But how can you read through Tolkien's work and not see his political viewpoint Mm -hmm. in it, right? It seems so obvious when you've read through it and seen what he's doing. He's critiquing every aspect of the mentality of the modern age. And I'm sure that he would have even stronger critiques of the post-postmodern age yeah. that we are living in. I, he would have critiques of the postmodernists as well because I think he advocated a return to what was before postmodernism as to what the postmodernists advocated. Yeah. Although, in my personal opinion, in the grand scheme of things, I find the postmodernists much less disagreeable than either the modernists or these mm-hmm. kind of post-postmodernists, these Frankfurt School types who, who run the show these uh, days. You know, I... Yeah, you understand some of the postmodernists, but I think ultimately, like, I think Tolkien was the epitome of pre-modernist. Like, he was a... Yeah, absolutely. A classic... He was a conservative in the best sense of the world. That he wanted to stand for the good. Like, this was... that The problem of the scientific age is that we've looked to... Or, okay... You know, that that classic quote from Jurassic Park, we, we spent so much time wondering if we could. We never asked if we should. That's our world in a nutshell, is we figure out what we can do, and we never ask, should we? Yeah, you already referenced that when it came to, the, like, the nuclear yeah. uh, possibilities. Like, we literally live in a world where we are at greater risk of nuclear annihilation than we have ever been. We're literally five to ten minutes away from it at every yeah point of our life higher than it was even during the cuban missile crisis and people don't even give that a second thought anymore people are so possessed with the desire to think about what can we do or what can i get away with that nobody stops for a second to think should i do this i mean it's it says so much that like ethics is the question of is more of a question of what can we get away with instead of the question of what is the best life? Like that was the question that, that Socrates and Plato. And I think those philosophers are a huge influence on the classicalist Tolkien. I mean, for one thing, like I, we, we haven't got into it and probably don't have time to, but Google the ring of Gyges and tell me that that isn't exactly the ring of power. It's so clearly intentional. It has to be intentional that he's thinking of the ring of Gyges with that. The magical ring that makes you invisible is the ring of power. And that's straight from mm-hmm. Ring of Gyges, which is from Plato's, uh, I forget which one. But the, the classical question of, of Socrates and, and even of the, the Christian philosophers of, of the Middle Ages, uh, the medieval period, and all the way up until even the, the classical conservatives of like Eliot and Burke and such, and they were always yeah. asking, the question was, what is the good life? We don't ask, what is the good? How do I live the good? The question is, what is permissible? That's the question of our of our generation. Like that, you think about, and that that question has been asked throughout. Tolkien asked it. Thoreau asked it. You think about Walden, yeah. right? Um, 
even there's even modern day people asking the question you see it within uh dare i say it even like konkin um for you know the agoras out there or with oh shoot who am i trying to think of right now jordan peterson i mentioned him mm-hmm. earlier questioning what is a good life you know that these are questions that you know perhaps they've always been under asked at the very least but the the question of just because we can do yeah. something, does that mean we should do something? It it, it often, yeah. it just often never goes asked. And, and if I can critique my own ideology on this one, uh, I'm a libertarian, but the, maybe the flaw at the heart of libertarianism is, is there's a sense in which we got caught in that question of what is permissible. Like that is really at the heart of libertarianism is what is and is not permissible. And there's a, a sense in which that's a good question in, in and of itself, but it's not a sufficient question. It doesn't get to the ultimate question of what is the good. And yeah, and that's kind of, and in some ways that's where the problem with the libertarian movement, if I can say this, is that a lot of times it leaves off at the end of the question of what is permissible, but it never goes further. It never moves on from that to be like, after we get the question of what is permissible and, and what is not permissible, then you need to move on to, okay, within what is permissible, what is the good? I 100% agree with you. Just because something yeah. is permissible doesn't mean it's automatically right. the most good. Take the NAP, right? right? The non-aggression principle. You have to treat the NAP as only a guideline. Mm. Well, number one, because it, it isn't necessarily sufficient for all circumstances. But number two, because simply not aggressing isn't always the right thing to do, mm. right? If there's, let's say, hypothetically, there's a homeless guy who doesn't have a, a jacket in, you know, cold weather. Where are you from? You're, you're from a colder state, right? Yeah. If there's a, Iowa. If there's a homeless guy, if you're you're from Iowa and, and you're in the dead of winter and you can clearly see, you're say you're at the gas station or something like that, and there's a homeless guy there without sufficient amount of overwear to keep him warm, is it better that you should keep your, you know, overcoat or is it better that you give it to him that way he can stay warm? Yeah. You know, not giving something to him is adhering to the non-aggression principle. But if you were to ask what is the better thing yeah. to do in that scenario, obviously giving freely of yourself right. is going to be the better thing to do in that scenario. Yeah. I mean, what my libertarianism says is that I do have the right to keep my coat. I, I You're right. I do have the right to keep my coat. However, the good says, but won't it be better if you give it to him? Like, won't it be better for him? Won't it be better for you? Won't it be better for just society if we were a society of people who gave their coats? Like, yes, yeah. we should preserve that right of private property that it is my coat. You cannot take my coat and give it to him. That is courting chaos. But the world is better if we are people who give our coats to homeless men. Absolutely. And, and, yeah, that's that's the thing that I think it, a thing that the the liberty movement needs to grapple with more, and it's a it's a very Tolkien thing to to grapple with is it's not enough to say don't wield the ring of power. The question is, what should we do instead of wielding the ring of power? Go home, start a garden, love your life, enjoy a good cigar, enjoy a good brandy, and uh, and love your neighbors. You know. With that, I think we can wrap up the conversation on Tolkien here. I think we've touched on a lot of his good points. I've really enjoyed having you on here, I want to say. It's been a great conversation, 
And Josh, I hope that you've had a great time here too, because it's been a blast for me. Yeah, I loved it. It's been a great time. I'll, I'll never tire of talking about my favorite author. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you want to go ahead and give your plugs here? Because I know you got your own podcast. You've got your Twitter handle. Put yourself on blast for everybody so they know where to find you. Sure. Yeah, I uh, I go by the name Ioan Cap on the Flyover Libertarian podcast. It's this, uh, as we like to say, we're we're three unimportant people from an unimportant place giving you the opinion that you didn't ask for. And uh, we go to the Flyover Libertarian podcast. Is it's on uh, pretty sure iTunes, Spotify, Anchor. Uh, YouTube, the whole gamut. You can find our our, our recordings there. I'll drop a link in the uh, in the description. Sweet. And uh, yeah, we have a we have a meme page on Facebook, but I know a lot of people are getting away from Facebook. So you can, you can find us there if you want to. Uh, otherwise, not. You know, I'm a I'm a classic millennial, so I uh, so I, I I've been on Facebook really since it began about. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking about jumping ship there too. So I got to understand, but if you're on Facebook, yeah, like our, like our page and follow it. It's, we, we post some funny memes there. Um, but, uh, big place to find me is on, on Twitter at IOANCAP, I O W A N C A P. It's a play on words, Iowa and cap, IOANCAP. And, uh, so you can find me there and, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's about the best place to find me. All right, Joshua, I really appreciate it. Like I said, have have had a fantastic time with you this evening. Great. So uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon, bud. Uh, Blessings on you and yours, and take care. Thank you very much. (laughs) 